0: What's up guys, it is another episode, thankfully another episode of Rick for Dirt. This is uh, a little atypical of what we've normally been used to. We are all at home and uh, I guess this is the adventure right now for all of us. We are in the midst of it on the coronavirus lockdown. This is what uh, day 2,562. Uh, <laughs> at least it feels that way. I think it's been more of like a month and a half now that we've all kind of been on lockdown depending on when you guys all started, but I'm here with my partner, Frank.
1: Hey, how's it going? Glad to be back on another episode of rigged for dirt. It's been, it feels like it's been a lot longer than two weeks.
0: Oh dude, it's not two weeks. I mean, I've, we've been on lockdown for well over a month now. Yeah. Um, Casey shut down pretty early, uh, with, uh, the early adopters of the lockdown situation.
1: Right. Right. Yeah. It definitely feels like it's been a while. So, um, I feel like we've kind of lost our groove a little bit with the lockdown. Like everything is upside down. Like the whole world has just shifted
0: yeah. and I don't,
1: yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's what's, what's, of what's off-roading.
0: I don't even know what that is anymore. Right. Over, over wedding. Like, right. Oh, no, you mean taking care of two rambunctious kids every single day with full-time <laughs> jobs. Yeah. That's what I do now.
1: <laughs> exactly, exactly so um, we're doing a couple new things um, on this podcast, right um, we're we're doing it over over skype because we all have to be um, locked down at home and um, on top of that, I'm testing out some live stream gear so that we can um, connect uh, with people in different and unique fun ways so um, right now um, I, I see people jumping on we've got three on Facebook already uh, checking oh, out no doubt
0: we're live right now yeah okay.
1: So um that way What's up guys? Yep, and then we can um we can interact with them too. I can see their comments when they come when they come across the screen. So it's pretty fun. Um but uh for now Ali, where are we at? What are we doing and who are we with today?
0: Oh man, okay, so yeah, like I said, we're we're coming to you out of our houses <laughs> and uh um I'm in my bedroom. It's the quietest place I could find in the house right now with like I said, two kids. Uh, but We've been uh we've been talking for a long time about getting our buddy Olaf on the podcast and I mean it's probably been a year that it first came up right right around the beginning of when we did this and Olaf was actually there for our very first episode we were out in Calico and uh it was for one of our escape the OC events with uh, Matt Frederick and uh, Olaf Adam you, yourself and a few others and uh that's when we recorded our first episode and Olaf said hey it'd be great to do an episode on uh on land use and so let me let olaf introduce himself what's up olaf hey what's up guys how you doing man
1: welcome Um, to the show
2: yeah it's uh i know we talked about this a while ago and um it's good to be here it's a yeah sunday it's it's definitely an interesting time um but uh well i I don't know exactly where you guys want me to start but uh anyway maybe,
0: maybe so you got that bfg hat on and then a lot of people there's a lot about you that a lot of people probably don't know which is like your involvement with area bfe out in utah um let's just start at the beginning how did you get into off-road racing and I, I mean frank what do you think is that a good place to start yeah i mean i think i, I think first first
1: and foremost people listening definitely need to get a sense of who olaf is um and yeah. and kind of kind of your background and who you are and and why why we're talking to you
2: yeah um so anyway I uh I started off roading when I was a kid, thanks to my fa- my father. Um, you know, fast forward to about 2003, a buddy of mine said, "Hey, let's go to Moab," and I said, "I can't, I can't. You know, I, I got too much work to do. <laughs> I can't take away. I can't take the time." He said, "No, no, let's just go for for a few days. We don't have to go for a whole week." So I went and uh, kind of fell in love with it, and it kind of rekindled some of my off roading. Um, prior to that, I was mainly backpacking and, uh, you know, doing a lot of foot stuff. And, and I had a Land Rover that I used to get from my house to the trails where I would put my backpack on and, and kind of go from there. But, uh, the off-roading thing really took a, took a turn in about 2003 when I went to Moab and I was, I was a member of the uh, Land Rover Club of San Diego at that time. And, you know, being a Land Rover owner. So that kind of transition there, and, and then they went to Moab also every year, which I didn't really know at that time. Um, after that first visit with my buddy that I was, went reluctantly, I uh, ended up going there three more times that year, actually a total of three times that year, and um, that the third time was in October. I was uh, with my buddy, then Easter Jeep Safari, then back with the Land Rover Group, group that October, and so on and so forth so that was really a turning point at that point in time i fell in love with moab uh the following year um i bought a house in moab and then you were all in yeah i was pretty much all in and then i got in touch with some you know with the guy and and uh, got involved with area bfe and then about a year after that ended up becoming the manager of area bfe and I ended up being the manager and uh, uh, one of the owners for uh, 10 years. Oh, wow. So that, that really, uh, that was pr- pretty major. It taught me a lot. So, so
0: for people who don't know, what exactly was Area BFE, like uh, paint a picture?
2: Yeah, so Area BFE is a very interesting place. Basically, it was a 320-acre piece of property, a half section, so a half mile wide by a mile deep and um, we wanted to make it our own playground. So about, I guess, at the end of my 10 years, when I sold my interest, we had about 40% was probably developed into trails and the other 60% was was just um, n- natural, you know, in its natural state. And um, we had anything from trails that were mild to wild the theory behind the whole thing was to have a place where people could go and um, without the fear of being thrown off of land as and, and that they could have fun in whichever way they wanted, from a mild person who just wanted to do trails to a guy that had a full built-on buggy and just wanted to go crazy. So we had trails, like I said, from mild to wild and that was a place where they could go without the fear of of having some violation or being kicked off of of what we call public land. Right.
0: Um that was a that was just all private, right? Like it was whatever you wanted to do for the most part.
2: Yeah, it was all it was private land and that was kind of the reason that we could do what we did. Um the other thing was again going back to having a place for people to go. Uh, we didn't charge an entry fee. It was all donation based. And we had uh, numerous events throughout the year that really brought in the income to keep the place open and pay for the upkeep and so forth, you know, things like that. And the events ranged from simple club events to corporate events to racing. Um, for about six years, or maybe a little longer, something around six, seven years, there was actually a three day uh, concert out there. Uh, you know, it was a pretty, pretty, it it grew over those years. And in the the last year that it was there, it was a pretty major deal. Um, Definitely a big outdoor event. And so all of those combined help us basically help people learn about Area BFE. And so each year we had more and more people come out, more companies come out and uh, enjoy the place. And, and like I said, it was it was open 365 days a year, 24 seven. You were on your own honor. Um, there were just a few rules: don't cut down trees, don't leave trash. You know, clean up after yourself. Right. Things like that. You know, don't destroy the place. And yeah, we're going uh, to get into
0: yeah. all that soon. <laughs> yeah, uh, we have a so, long long discussion about not trashing stuff and uh, absolutely, absolutely. Um, what was uh? What was your reasoning for uh, leaving area b f e or selling your interest?
2: You know, I got to a point where I think it was it was it it was at a point where it was just time for me to make a change, and my partner at that time he wanted to take over and so I said, "Hey, you want to buy me out?" and he said yes, and that's how it worked. that was it.
0: You know it's interesting uh I know you mentioned kind of area b f e in the past tense, but this year. Our original plan before they shut down uh, Moab and canceled Easter Jeep Safari was KC was going to actually do an event with another group who was running Area BFE, so they must still be doing some stuff out of there.
2: Yeah, it's um, Area BFE as it as a piece of property um, still does exist. Um, however, it's not; it doesn't exist in the same. Uh, sense that it did before where it was open 365 days 24 7 and people could come and go and so on and so forth now i i I don't know exactly but as i understand it it's closed um to the general public and it's just open by event and Uh um you know that that's that's my understanding of it
0: cool um there's, uh, there's even more to you that I thought was really interesting. We don't have to dig into it too deep, but you've got a, you've got a pretty decent service history as well, right? For the government.
2: Oh yeah. I was in the military for a while, once upon a time. <laughs> so yeah, it was a previous life.
0: And it's funny cause that kind of, that still carries over to a lot of facets about like who you are as a person, the way that you kind of have that preparedness mentality and, uh, Um, just your overall vibe. I think, uh, I think it probably serves you pretty well going through this current crisis. What would you say?
2: Um, yeah, (laughs) you know, this is kind of a, a first time for, for everyone. I mean, I've read books about, uh, other countries that have gone through different things, you know, whether it's economic collapse and, and things like that. And, uh, been places that are, you know, I guess, have a lot less going for them than the United States does. And then to see this develop, and then I remember going to the store with my wife and walking through the store and the shelves being relatively yeah. empty, um, that definitely made me pause for a minute and think and, and it took me back almost to a primal. A, a state of, you know, okay, I'm prepared, but now I started self-evaluating and thinking, am I prepared enough? You know, have I prepared enough? And, you know, really uh, definitely did a person, personal inventory, not just of thi- you know, things, but of myself and ran through things in my head about, you know, how am I going to, you know, are we ready for this? Is my right. family ready for this? You know, if the if the proverbial shit hits the fan here, um, am I? You know, are we ready? Uh, and uh, it, it, it for about a week, I was not sure. We we were maybe two weeks. We were kind of gauging really what we were going to do, uh, whether it was going to be a situation of of uh, staying in place or or bugging out to a different location.
1: Right. Yeah, I, I think. think uh, Sorry, sorry to cut you off there earlier. I think one of the things yeah, that um, became uh, super apparent in all of this is um, a lot of us thought I think we were more prepared than we actually were when all this kind of kicked off. Like I think we all kind of thought we had our program pretty dialed um, and then all of this happened and we realized that um, there's a lot of key staples that maybe we took for granted and maybe we weren't as prepared as we thought we were.
0: Dude, everyone's got a plan until you get punched in the face. And uh, this was like a, this was a big punch in the dick. So <laughs> I was not expecting it. I was expecting it up here, and then it came from a whole different direction. Yeah,
1: I mean, I think um, a lot of people forget medications too, right? Like, that's one of the things that I think a lot of people forgot. They were like, I should have a supply of those things, and I really don't.
0: Yeah, I mean, my mother-in-law had that same situation where we've been sheltering her uh, from everything. We've been, you know, going out for her. She lives with us, so... You know, she's in that seventy year old age group where um she's at a higher risk. And, you know, right off the bat she's like, Oh, I need to get some of my meds, and it's like, Well, you can't go out, we gotta go out for you. Right. And and then you go out there and you and I think that was maybe one of the first times you really realized how crazy it was getting, where you get out there and the lines are just insane and and it kind of takes you back to those uh um those things you learned in school where there were like these crazy food line food lines in other countries during the war and even here. And it's like, you never thought you'd see that we're, you know, it goes back to that whole, like, Oh, we're modern dough. Oh, we have PayPal and credit cards and Amazon. Like we'll never be without anything. We'll never want for anything. And then suddenly, suddenly I can't wipe my ass because (laughs) maybe I forgot to go buy toilet paper, you know? And I figured I'd go next week and surprise, there's nothing left. And it's like, Everyone went toilet paper crazy. I can tell you Um,
1: I can tell you that of the hundreds upon hundreds of apocalyptic (laughs) movies that have been made, not a single one covered toilet paper. I guarantee you they will now. Right?
0: Um, but yeah, I mean, we were, we were kind of prepping for our, uh, camp out for Rickford dirt right before, right. just as it was gradually kind of getting tighter and tighter where it's like no groups over a thousand, no groups over 500, no groups over 300. And, um, it was around that time where, as I was driving to Joshua tree. I heard that announcement of oh no groups over what what was it like I think it was three hundred at that time yeah like, I think
1: it was yeah three hundred and then it dropped like within twelve hours I think to two hundred and we were yeah. already kind of going
0: on that point. Dude, I was like, shit, maybe this is a little bit more serious. And I don't really listen to mainstream news, so all that fear mongering is lost on me. I don't I don't hear any of it. Yeah, and- I
1: really kind of I really kind of tapered off um, here in the last like probably week and a half two weeks i've just kind of stopped watching the local news i mean any news for that matter and i just kind of like when i want to know something i'll just hit my news sources on demand but i'm not right i'm done like with the actual news cycle and just leaving it all on in the background or anything like that because yeah
2: yeah i hear you i, mean, I hear you I yeah feel the I same mean, way more so than just bad
1: like not even it's, it creates it's anxiety creating like even about like, yeah. forget the part about getting information it's there's only so much information coming out at, you know, so often that you end up hearing the same thing over and over again. And it Mm -hmm. just
0: creates this crazy amount of anxiety. Like it's turns into a feedback loop too, where everyone starts talking about the same stuff and then everyone just keeps taking it up like a notch. Oh, it totally does. They're like trying
1: to one up each other, right?
0: Dude. I mean, the reality is, is even in the U S our reaction. And they said, if you did a good, if we did a good job, It would feel like we overreacted. Totally. And and right now they're starting to say, hey, looks like we overreacted. So maybe that means we've done a good job. And the figures or or
2: maybe we just overreacted. Yeah, maybe. (laughs) And that's why I like
0: having you on here, Olaf, because I feel like we're gonna get a lot of opinions that we normally don't get. Um, from a whole different perspective, and uh, what? How's your take been like? You know, thus far. I mean, this is an open forum, so feel free. We'll we'll, we'll I mean, have I, our...
2: I'm with you. I mean, I I quit watching. Like I, I, you know, we we watch the financial news all the time. Being in real estate, right, and, right, and trading on the stock market and things like that. I mean, you know, you have to be up. People are always asking, "Is it a good time to buy?" Is it a, you know whatever, right? And so, uh, I generally for the entire morning up until the market closes and even maybe a little past that I always have the financial news on, but I found myself turning off the financial news. And and the reason I say financial news is because I don't really like watching a lot of the other stations because there's a bunch of politics involved. Not I try to stay away from all that stuff because it just, like you said, it just, it becomes kind of a negative, you know, kind of negative on the, on the psyche. Right. Um, but the financial news stays with financial stuff but i found that the financial news was was really kind of replaying the same thing and they had right. a coronavirus clock on the <laughs> on the screen and and i'm like you know okay
1: they're just dialing uh, up the drama aren't they <laughs>
2: yeah yeah i think the media you know the media went and did as much as they could do to to fearmonger and all that stuff um i think there's information that's that's definitely important to provide but I think they they definitely went above and beyond that in terms of uh, their coverage of this whole thing. Um, but it is interesting to watch the news because about ten days ago I saw a change in the news cycle. Okay. Um, and I say news cycle because you know when you if you watch the news long enough, I mean for years, you'll notice that there's a cycle of how how much time they can take talking about the same subject. Yeah, there's like you know, the flavor how,
1: of the day, right? Like this is right. this is this is the topic of the day. This is what's hot right now.
2: Right. And there's certain things like positive stories that they'll spend 15 seconds on. Right. And then there's coronavirus that they spent about, I would say about a month on really hitting it hard. Right. And then about Wednesday, 10 days ago, I saw that I saw change. They, it was the first day they didn't talk about coronavirus. They didn't have the coronavirus clock anymore. Um, oh. And, I, and I, I, that was a definite shift. And then there were certain bits that were coming out each day after that that you could tell that the news cycle was changing. And then it became just about the impact, the economic impact of this whole thing. And that's been the conversation for the last 10 days. And then yesterday, right. uh, Friday... Yesterday or Friday, I saw the first two news bits that were talking about the election again, the the upcoming elections. Oh yeah, there's
0: that too, huh? Yeah, (laughs) it's it's about to get a whole lot weirder.
2: Yeah. So you know, so that so so again, it's interesting just to see how it works, just to see those change in news cycles. Um, But yeah, watching the news can be a, a terrible thing.
0: Dude, I mean, it's interesting. Yeah, I I saw that economic shift because now they're really focusing on on stories like, oh, this could be the worst economic collapse since the Great Depression, or worse than the Great Depression. And in my mind, yeah, it sucks. It sucks for a lot of people. There's a lot of people unfortunate uh, where they've lost their jobs. Uh, Businesses are shutting down. Um, The list goes on. But I also think it's an opportunity for us to kind of reset the the normal way of business and the way things kind of run and operate. Um, 100%. There is some potential here for a a more modern, different way of doing things, you know, like we've become very accustomed to Amazon and a lot of people do do use like things like Postmates or, you know, Grubhub, but maybe, maybe that's where we're kind of heading. Where now I was, I was having this conversation with my mother-in-law and my wife, um, and, and bear with me, it's not a fully formed thought, but I was thinking like maybe a lot of these restaurants or food places turn into more on the production side where they, they produce the food and you just go pick it up and you bring it home. Maybe it's not so much sitting in, dining in, uh, but it's just, you know, we're turning into more of a mobile society. I don't know. No, it, it's, it's
1: actually a really good point And it's funny that it's a good thing that you bring that up because um, I was watching a story um, with some, actually it wasn't even a story. What was I watching? I was watching oh I was watching Shark Tank.
0: <laughs> okay. <laughs>
1: of of all things and there was a guy who was uh, had a business that he was kind of creating, he was going to franchise it and essentially it was that it was a it was a food business, but it was all back end. It was a it was they had no storefront. So it was just a complete kitchen and food services would come by and pick up orders. And it started in New York, right, which makes a ton of sense right. cuz real estate's super expensive, but if you don't have a storefront, the the real estate's a lot cheaper, right? If you're back in an alley You know, you can get that rent space for a lot less than if you were up in front of the street. And so, um, and everyone's using Grubhub and all these different, you know, Postmates and whatnots. Right. And so he says his business has been booming. And since this happened, it's been really booming. Like it's just been he was exploding. already positioned. He was already positioned yeah. for it. Right. And I so I completely agree with you that I think that going forward, I think that there's a certain things that are probably for better or worse. I think for better personally that are probably here to stay um, con- contactless uh, food delivery. That's always a great idea, right? Like I don't yeah. need people's germs on my food. Period. Like that's that's always a great idea. I think that's gonna stay curbside pickups, all that kind of stuff. I think is is for the long term. I think it's not gonna go anywhere. I'm surprised that more companies aren't pushing contactless payment with your phone. Like I've been doing, right. I've been using that so much more in the last like month, and it's been actually well, you know what, really dude. Cool. What pisses
0: me off about that though is like yeah, contactless payment with your phone. You you know hold your iPhone up, double click it. Right. Scans your face. I still got to sign the damn thing. It's oh, you like, do. Take that out of the loop. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes, depending on the vendor, that's true. Take that out of the loop, and then, <laughs> oh, fuck you, dude. This is that a donut? Gonna, he is totally gonna enjoy a donut. Was, on that, a, was that a donut? <laughs> I haven't had and a donut so, in like a month and a half.
2: It's actually Krispy Kreme, and they deliver. Oh my oh, god, dude! Talking there's... about talking about um, uh, contactless, uh, <laughs> you know, <Delivery>? services. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Dude, yeah.
0: so we drove by the Krispy Kreams uh, out there uh, um, on the way to Laguna Niguel. Uh The line was out out of the parking lot down the main street that leads into the center um, wow. for people who wanted their donut fix. And I and I could kind of understand it. I could kind of empathize with uh, where those people are coming from. Yeah, hundred percent. I miss I miss my uh, ham and cheese croissants out of my local donut shop. You
1: can see the line for In and Out here where I live. It's like oh yeah, it's it's, it's like a quarter mile long. It's insane. Um, but you know, getting back to like kind of where the country is going and, um, I do agree with you all that I think there's a lot of opportunity here. I think in order to rebuild a system, you kind of have to first tear it down. And I think that was kind of the benefit of, you know, in, in spite of, you know, hindsight being 2020, that that was kind of the benefit of the great depression, right? When the whole, when everything collapsed, um, and everything from the monetary system, uh, to our social services, um, on up was rebuilt again. A lot of things came out of that Great Depression that changed America forever, right? And I think um, this is an opportunity for us to recognize things that aren't working, things that aren't working when things go bad, right? And how we can kind of fix those things for the future and shore them up so that things work correctly going forward.
0: Well, dude, let me say something about uh, things needing to be restructured. Uh, This is a big fuck you to Mr. Cooper, my uh, mortgage lender, um, (laughs) who... who basically I called up and said, hey, you know, things are a little tight right now. Uh, On my wife's side, there's like, you know, the courts are closed, so she deals in legal matters. Um, And since the courts are closed, it's, it's a little bit of a hit to us. And I'm like, hey- is it possible to get some type of you know deferment? And they're like, oh, yeah, totally. We'll, we'll totally work with you. I'm like, dude, this is amazing. Right. Oh, my God, we're going to save so much money. And he's like, yeah, so we can defer for three months. I'm like, great, let's do it. They're like, but, and I'm glad they said the but part, uh, but at the, on the fourth month, we want you to pay for all three months plus your fourth month's mortgage. I'm like- So four uh, months in one shot. Bro, how does that make sense? Wow. If, if, you're, if you're struggling, it's not like on that fourth month, you've suddenly- come into a windfall and can now afford all four months of payments there's no i I just don't understand the logic oh 100 i mean mean,
1: you could probably speak more to it because you're in that industry Uh. but i mean i think i think from what i heard that was a lender by lender like they were making up their own protocols on how to handle that because we actually had the same thing and ours isn't doing that um they're just taking a straight deferment and tacking it onto the end Oh, basic. that's
0: that's super legit. I yeah. would totally be happy yeah, and charge me interest. It. I don't care. Yeah, they're I don't doing care. it.
1: They're doing it on our vehicle loan. It's it's the same bank. They're doing it for everything. They're saying you just you don't even have to call us if you miss your payment on that day. It automatically defers. They don't have you don't have to do anything. That's the which right is, thing. Which to is do. impressive.
2: Yeah, the only so yeah, there's um yeah the the government came down with that mandate and the banks obviously are working together to do the 90 day forbearance and all you have to do is call or in your case, not even call, I guess. Yeah. Um, and it, it, you don't even, I guess I'm going to, I'm going to be, I'm going to, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say, unfortunately people don't have to show cause. Um, they don't have to show hardship. That's true. Um, and that is a problem. Um, I think, I think if you can make your mortgage right now, I think you should. I think if you have a hardship, then it should be there should be a forbearance um, there, and I don't know if this part is affecting the credit, but I think you should check with your mortgage companies to make sure that that they are also not just a forbearance, but not going to report you late right. on your mortgage. Um, I know Chase, uh, and I'm not sure the other mortgage companies are not going to report you late for those ninety days. Um, but I can't speak for all lenders. I don't know if that's mandated across the board or not. It's definitely something people should check, but, but again, you know, and the reason I say that people should show cause for hardship, not being able to make their, their payments is because if you don't make your payment, it creates a a drag on the system. And these servicers who, these servicers end up having to, in, in many cases, make the payments or it goes to it and it defaults to an insurance, a mortgage insurance uh, insurer to make a payment. And so those funds have to come from somewhere. Now that causes other issues in the mortgage industry that's not the retail side and more on the wholesale side and servicing that that causes other problems that will then end up coming back to us. But that's another discussion. Getting compounded.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. Right. So, yeah, for
2: sure. But I mean, there's, there's. I'm glad that that there's been a lot of proactive movement from the government and the and the mortgage companies um, because that I think those kinds of things we did not see in 2006 and seven and eight and nine right. when things fell apart with the economy and right. and there was a huge issue with housing and mortgages and just a big mess. Uh, Yeah.
1: No, you're right. You're absolutely right. I think in 2002 or 2008, uh, one of the things that we saw there was um, one, the reaction was way slower by the government. Yes. Like it, like it, it completely went into full meltdown and even went on for a good six months before they did anything about it. Um, Mm -hmm. I mean it, the, the actual bailout package, if I recall, didn't even complete in the administration that was there. Like it had to actually be put in place by Obama's administration. Right. Mm So, so it didn't even get done under the previous administration. Um, they had, they laid out most of the groundwork basically. And so, I mean, that's the one benefit I think that we're seeing now is that they actually acted fairly quick um and for better or worse right when with 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 speed comes errors right in, in the need sure. to kind of like a- kind of short things up but yeah. uh but the fact of the matter is is that we needed that speed and we had to just live with the mistakes um and fix them as we could and um the other thing too i noticed the main difference is do you and you may remember this is um how divided people were in the fact that a bailout was even happening in the first place right. there was a lot of anger there was a lot of blame on people that were just they, you know i it was I I noticed that there was real quick, the people that were dumb enough to take an adjustable mortgage and the people that weren't right. This was the attitude like you're dumb because you did, I didn't screw you. Right. And so, and that's something that was very, that's very different now is that I think obviously we're not fighting a person, right. Or persons, Mm -hmm. we're fighting something that's collectively impacting everybody. But um, the fact that we all kind of united behind this, I think was also a huge difference and a huge positive.
2: Well, yeah, I, I I think so too. I mean, you're not, yeah, yeah you're not blaming some individual somewhere behind a desk who created some kind of financial instrument that's right. been right. cut and swapped and traded and whatever. Um, you know, this is something else this is a health related issue. So it definitely is a little different
0: the bailout thing is what kind of stands out when i think when i feel that little sense of entitlement where if like if we're <laughs> if we're having a little bit of a hard time right now and like a little help from the from the lender is well the people's money went into bailing out those banks and those you know lenders um if if my wife is struggling right now with her business or having a harder time well i want to make sure that they're going to help me the same way that they expected the government to come to their aid you know um, and if that's naive, I mean, I, I'm, I'm totally open to hearing the, the counter argument to it, but I feel like there's a little bit of uh, reciprocity that should be there uh, when I'm not being told, oh yeah, we can defer your payment or forbearance, but whatever, it's we're going to tack it on to that fourth month and you're going to have a balloon payment of four months worth right. of mortgage payments due at, upon you know, your, fourth, uh, your fourth month's bill. Um, that to me does not make sense. Just the logic of it doesn't make sense.
2: Yeah, I would I would definitely um, call them and clarify. I, I would even go so far as to get in touch with your political representative, you know, senator, uh, yeah. you know, House of Representatives. And um, because it's kind of a hot button uh, if your constituents aren't Absolutely. being taken care of, especially in an election year. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you no, know, no, they, no. they may they may listen
1: And a lot of these, and the one thing to consider too, is that um, depending on where you're listening or watching um, a lot of, these things are state regulated not federally regulated so if you do call your your local representative he actually can do something uh to right. push to push for change or to force them to treat like olaf mm-hmm. said constituents differently in that particular state so yeah a, that's actually really good advice to get in touch and and you know what make some noise man you know the the, the squeaky wheel gets the grease right Dude, there's yeah. nothing
0: more motivating than money
1: yeah <laughs> A vote definitely is more motivating yeah. than money right now for those guys for sure. Um, I mean, we could definitely talk about this all day, but Olaf, I definitely want to get into um, I think Land some yep. some points that um, are also particularly relevant to people that are listening to this particular podcast, um, but also to your skill set and your knowledge um, within the outdoor space um, and off roading and having area BFE in your background work. Um, you know, working uh, with BFG right during the races and doing the stuff that you do for the race relay um, is more around land use. And we talked about this briefly, I think, in our conversation this afternoon about how, you know, even though we're not using the land right now, um, there's a lot of things that you can be doing as an individual to protect your land use, uh, make use of that time that you have at home um, and not going out and put it towards maybe uh, preserving some of that land so that when you do go back out, you've got uh, some open space to enjoy.
2: Yeah, um, land use is uh, definitely something I became very familiar with. <laughs> with area BFE, um, it was interesting when I was backpacking. I didn't really take notice of the different types of land that there are. There are different, many different kinds of lands, and they're protected in different ways. There's there's your local park, right, which is basically like a city city run, right. and then there's like state parks. There's county parks, right. And there's there's uh, state state parks, and then there's uh, the Forest Service, and then there's BLM land, and then within those you have different levels. Like for instance, in the forest, you have specially protected areas that are called wilderness areas, and um, you know those are more sensitive and generally only open to foot traffic, not even bicycles. Um, horseback. Horses, could. right? Horses, Horses you could in wilderness yeah. area. Um, And things like that. And then, um, you know, BLM works different or used to work different. I think it varies by state, but generally speaking, uh, Forest Service, if it's the sign basically is posted that you can't go there, then you can't go there. Um, On BLM land, you used to be able to go anywhere unless there was a sign. So Forest Service is kind of the reverse. I don't know if I said that right, but but um, so anyway, yeah. So it's it's a it's it's very convoluted. You have to know before you know. Everybody says know before you go, um, know where you're going, um, and all that stuff. So it's it, it it's a mess. <laughs> it really is. Uh, there's there's state trust lands, uh, and um, and then if you have water running across your property, that's even a bigger mess. Oh wow! It's, it, it's romantic, but it's. Um, you know, it's a bigger mess because then everybody wants to have their hands in your, in your, uh, pocket about what you do with that, what you do with that land and, and what you do with that water.
1: Right, right. Um,
2: so it, 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 it's a lot. So I didn't even realize to what extent until I got involved with area BFE. And, um, when, if you were to look at a map and I, I don't have a map of that particular area in front of me right now, but, Again, it's a half mile by a mile. So to the east of us, our neighbor uh, was the BLM. And to the south, it was the BLM. And to the west, we had two neighbors. Um, One neighbor had a quarter section, and he had developed his property and broke it down into four and six acre parcels that he basically um, subdivided and was selling. And then the northern our northwestern neighbor uh is is a was a, or is a couple who were very anti uh off-road anti OHV off-highway vehicle Those are great um,
1: neighbors to have <laughs> For
0: Yeah,
2: an yeah. Vehicle so park. The, <laughs> the real estate guy he was cool you know he was super cool in the BLM you know we had a we had a uh, we had détente so it was you know it was uh, as long as we didn't you know, as long as we kind of were nice neighbors and we we made sure to do our best to educate people about how to act and what you can and cannot do on BLM land, the BLM was kind to us and didn't really give us any problems. Um, however, it was interesting that Northwestern neighbor who was very anti-OHV was very anti-OHV. Oh, I lost something here. Oh. Did you, oh, okay, there nope, you go. You're, you're still yeah. good.
1: Yep. Yeah. Um,
2: so, so, yeah, so that Northwestern neighbor, which kind of was along that Strike Ravine section there, the upper edge of that Strike Ravine, she hated us. She used to take pictures of what we did with the property, uh, the races, the events, the things like that. Um, video, she wrote things on Facebook about how terrible we were, um, just really, really aggressive. Um, There was a back, a northern um, way to access the property uh, through kind of Strike Ravine. And and in that area, there's lots of roads everywhere. There's, you know, it was established through mining. So there's little spurs and things that go all over the place. And so there was another way to access the property from the north uh, without accessing her property. But she was... uh, the, those people, okay, and she was the closest neighbor to this. What I'm going to say right now, during events, during certain events, they would place boulders, uh, good-sized boulders, in the middle of this way in an obscure place where you could not see it, around a blind curve, so or up. coming out of a coming out of a a, a dip, so you oh, couldn't wow. see it when you were exiting. So they would booby trap this thing. Hopefully, hit it. Yeah, they they were, they were. They played some pretty nasty games. Um and they, you know, she's just one or those activities are just a few examples of the behavior. Um she she in particular got her hand slapped when she tried to block uh strike access on Strike Ravine, which is a county road, and um she tried to prevent people from from driving on that road because it goes through her property. Well, she can have gates on either end, but she's not allowed to to prevent uh, drive-through access. But she did that, and then uh, the the county and some of the off-road organizations around Moab, Moab Friends for Wheeling, spent a lot of money to um, to take her to court and ended up um, winning. And so she had to leave people the right to access. Obviously, you couldn't stop, and you didn't necessarily want to stop, right. but um, But she, you know, it's those kinds of things that deal, you know, we deal with land use and access. That's just the access, the question of access. Um, And I know that there's a lot of people out there who believe, and I do too, in principle, I believe that there's enough land out there for everybody to have what they want. If, you know, there's enough land out there to be kept um, in its natural state, so that we still maintain habitats and and be good conservationists and, you know, from anything from flora and fauna and all of those types of things, right. uh, geology, uh, to preserve all of that. But then there's also the recreational aspects where there's places to do that recreation, right? Like Area BFE was a place to go and recreate. Um, so, uh, but... Not everybody thinks that way. Not everybody thinks that there's there's a place there's, you know, a place for everyone. These um anti-OHV or what I call them are preservationists. And I call them I don't call them environmentalists. I call them preservationists because because they want to preserve land in its natural habitat. <laughs> like um, in its
1: natural state, unchanged, um, in its, untouched, in its natural
2: state, untouched, unchanged. Yeah. Um, but it's an interest, it's a very interesting thing on many levels, because if I take our Northwestern neighbor, that area BFE neighbor, you know, you take her, for example, she didn't like what we were doing to the land, but, you know, she cut a road up to her property right. and she drove a Subaru, you know, a combustion engine Subaru, right? Car. And she built a house on her land, And she used all of this, all of these building materials, and all this stuff, and that's okay. That's okay, you know. But it was not okay for us to do what we were doing on our property. And if anybody who knows anything about uh, land uh, uh, um, preservation and and habitats and stuff like that, if you cut a road across a piece of land, you're 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 dividing that habitat. Right. you know, but of I'm course right. that, that was okay in her book. And so there's a, there are double standards, a uh, level of
0: hypocrisy out there, a
2: level of hypocrisy. And, um, but be that as it may, these people are very, very adamant about their position. They're a little um, fanatical, right? There is a certain fanaticism about it. You're absolutely right. I mean, and, I, and unfortunately, the off-road community doesn't understand what I consider to be the enemy. Um, and the enemy, basically, are these people who don't think that there's a place for you to go and do what you want to do. Whether it's camping, or whether it's mountain biking, or whatever your flavor of right. fishing, shooting, whatever, you know, might be. Um, as long as you're a good steward. No. No, they don't even want you stepping on the land. Right. They yeah, don't. this
1: is something that's interesting because yeah. we deal with it a lot in uh, in the bike world. Shimano. Shimano. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we deal with it quite yep. a bit with uh, land preservation and um, different kinds of uses that we that we have there. And so it's uh, it's one of those things where um, you know we're constantly trying to fight. With uh, with being good stewards of the land, and you saying that we're in protecting the land and making sure that we prevent erosion, and then we, you know, like you said, don't divide habitats. Um, you know, we're kind of try and keep everything together. But there are, you're right. There's definitely a a specific group of people that, uh, unless you're on foot, uh, they don't want you anywhere in there. Period. Um,
2: oh, it 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 actually goes beyond that. Um, you know, I I um being part of Area BFE, I wanted to learn a little bit more about managing land. So several, many years ago now, six, seven years ago, I took a class at Saddleback, Saddleback College over here in Orange County. And it was, it was to become a a certified naturalist for the County of Orange. And so in that, it was a semester long class and it was very good class. I encourage anyone to take that class, not only just for the educational aspect, but it got me out to different parts of Orange County to see things that I had not seen in Orange County before. And so very interesting, very educational. However, the, the demographic in that class was very interesting. They were, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I told them, we had to go around the class and basically introduce yourself and say, hey, why are you taking the class? And I said, well, you know, I own some property in Utah, and I just want to learn how to manage it better. I, I did not go beyond that to say that, you know, We basically do some hardcore off-roading and we, you know, tear it up pretty good, you know, and and this and that, because they probably would have uh, hung me an effigy in the classroom or something like that, you know. But um, in the class, it was very interesting because we got to a certain point. I don't remember the subject that we were talking about, but I do remember this statement that humans are an invasive species. That's the exact statement that was said in this classroom. In the class by the teacher? Uh was not the teacher, it was actually part of the subject we were talking about, and then it became a discussion in the classroom and I, I don't remember exactly who said it, how it started, but the consensus was that the humans are an invasive species. And the you know, when you when you look at the definition of an invasive species, an invasive species is is for instance like a plant or a tree or something like that that outperforms it, it's not native to that habitat, number one, and then it outperforms the native plants in that particular habitat, right? And um, so I'm not exactly sure how we qualify as a as an invasive species, <laughs> but that was the that was the attitude um, of these individuals in this classroom, yeah. and that is very much the attitude of the people who are anti OHV and want to prevent access to the uh, motorized off, you know, off highway motorized recreation. Uh, it's, it's, um, you know, to kind of double down on that when we go off road, we go to recreate, we go to have fun, we go to use the land, right? right. Um, when they go, they go and they recreate and they hike and they do whatever they do. Um, But they don't see it as like they're going to visit or use the land. They see that land as their land. Like if it was their front yard or backyard. And when we drive on that land, it's it's the same feeling as if somebody was to do burnouts in your front yard.
1: Right. They they take it very personal.
2: Absolutely. They take it extremely personal. Mother Earth. Yeah. Um, and that's a whole different mindset when, you know, you're talking about uh, ownership. Um, when you're talking about your front yard, you know your property, um, and so forth, And most people don't see public lands as their own; they see it as the government's. And right. that was a that was a very key key thing in Area BFE because at all the events, you know, I and and another partner uh, in Area BFE would stand at the front gate, and we would introduce ourselves to each person who came through the gate. We would talk to them. We would thank him for coming. We would ask him for a donation. Uh, some people gave. Some people didn't. You know, we ha- you know gave him a map, answered any questions, said if they hadn't needed anything, we were here, and all that. And so, so they saw that it was a couple guys just like them. You know, it was just some guys just like them who owned this property, and so they felt like they took they took better care of it because there was an attachment there, right? right? Right. And there was the a relationship
1: road, there. Yep,
2: The off-road community mm-hmm. doesn't have that same attachment to what we call public land. Um, I'm not sure why, but the anti-OHV people, they have an attachment. And I tell you what, when we go drive and spin our wheels and crawl over rocks, it's like we're driving on their front lawn. Uh, and they, they take it very personal.
1: And I think that's yeah. actually a really good point because that brings it back to what we said earlier or what I said earlier about, you know, kind of the squeaky wheel gets the grease. Right. And I think it's because they're so passionate about it and they take it so personally that they are so vocal. And I think that's kind of where you have this delta where people that um, take ownership of the land are up here in volume and people who don't are down here in volume. And so, you know, when it comes to any kind of decision making at the federal level, at the state level, even at the local level, the people who show up and make the most noise are the ones who they assume have the most at stake or the ones that they assume, sure. um, have the have the vested interest. Right. So it's kind of like the age old adage, right. If you're not going to speak, someone's going to speak for you. And that's kind of sounds like what's happening, uh, with public lands.
0: Yeah, no doubt.
2: Yeah. Um, you know, I always encouraged people to get involved, um, to take care of, Land And, and, you know, even though Area BFE was a place for people to stay, you know, to get pretty crazy, they still had to stay on the trails. Um, They still had to stay on the trails, and there were still areas where they were not allowed to drive. And every once in a while, I had to educate someone on, hey, you shouldn't be parking your vehicle on those plants, or you shouldn't be parking your vehicle. You know, but it was more of an educational thing. Um, What I think, um, again, you know, going back to access and saying public land, public land is not really public. <laughs> public, public land is really government land.
1: Right. It's um, it's the context and, of the word public. And we right. have the
2: right to use it, but it, it, it doesn't belong to us, you know? So, and I think maybe that's part of it. I think people, you know, a lot of the off-road community sees it that way. It's kind of like an us and them uh, right. kind of thing. And so we yeah. don't end up,
0: yeah, a lot, of, a lot of people haven't had 15 uh, SUVs uh, with BLM stickers on the side, roll up on them when they're trying to throw a party in the desert late at night in Apple <laughs> yeah. Valley. Um, and the reason why I know that story is because I was that guy with another partner, uh, and we're talking like 20 years ago, mm-hmm. um, and we threw a party out in Apple Valley on a piece of BLM land. And yeah, we had a very nice uh, encounter with uh, the BLM, and i had a court appearance that i had to go to and uh yeah they didn't take very kindly to us kind of um i guess it turned out that one of the guys who was partnered on the on the party that we threw actually sold tickets and we were trying to get out of it by saying we weren't selling tickets and uh somebody did actually make right. money so they they used that immediately to to mm-hmm. shut it down but That's but yeah they're changer. they're Dude, yep. th- you you hear stories about helicopters coming down and um, oh yeah, checking on people <laughs> who are on BLM land shooting guns that maybe they shouldn't yep. be shooting. Yeah, uh, they they still yeah <laughs> yeah hands up hands up um, <laughs> yeah they uh, they still they still uh, they still regulate stuff. Um, it's just you know it's kind of like you said the honor system where they're expecting people who go out there to take care of it, treat it proper, and unfortunately a lot of people don't. Like we just did the Joshua the second major Joshua Tree cleanup and like tens of thousands of pounds of uh, garbage was collected from mattresses to uh, general trash to targets, uh like car chassis. TVs, everything, car chassis. Yeah. And people just treat it like garbage. And um, what, I, what I think is like a lot of people within the off-road community or recreationalists, they have this feeling of uh, not only entitlement, but that it's they just take it for granted. They figure it's always going to be there. Nobody cares about this piece of desert. I was just talking to Colin from the Desert Cleanse Project, who we raised a lot of money for. Um, and we were talking about it. I'm like, yeah, people take it for granted. And they and they think it's just this... They've, they treat it like it's a landfill that they could go have fun at. And unfortunately, the difference between those people and then the conservationists, the conservationists think of it as Mother Earth. They think of it as this this land that needs to be treated well and to give for generations to come if we could bring those two worlds kind of together into a middle ground you would get your off road you know trails open you would have good conservation of the things that needed to like you know be be protected and take be taken care of but unfortunately you don't. You have it one way or the other, and we're not quite finding that happy middle. And I think maybe the Overland community is one of the first major movements within the off-road uh, space that has that kind of mentality within it. So I don't know. Maybe maybe there's yet there's still hope.
2: Well, that's a really big if, Ali. <laughs> yeah. um, that's a that's a that's a huge if, you know. And the reason I say, I mean, I, I wish that that was possible. I wish there could be a compromise. But there's something about these preservationists. Um, and and I'll tell you, they are uncompromising.
0: Right. Yeah. There's no that's, middle ground. They are, yeah.
2: There is no middle ground.
1: And I think ultimately that's kind of the problem, right? Between any any side, whether it's the hardcore off roaders who don't want to kind of take that kind of ownership or responsibility, or the hardcore conservationists who don't want to uh, share the land or even you know have anyone touch it uh, f- for any reason, right? It's that it, it it's kind of in an alle- kind of an allegory for everything. Right. Everything in life is kind of that way. When you take these extreme positions and you're unwilling to compromise or unwavering um, in that position, uh, nobody really wins. Everyone just gets a little, a little victory here and a little victory there, but nobody ever gets really what they want, you know? And so it's just this constant battle, this constant cycle. And I I think, you know, the old adage goes when, when there's a war, the only person that wins is the guy selling the bullets.
2: <laughs> Great. I, I honestly and in this I case, it's the lawyers. <laughs> that you know, you're right. You're right. I mean, that's um, a good point. Uh, sorry, Ali. <laughs> no, no, go for it. <laughs> but, Say it. Um, you know, there is a winner though, uh, Frank, and the winner, unfortunately, are the anti-OHV people. And I'll tell you why. One, they're uncompromising. Two, they're better organized. I think Three, that's the key. Three, they're better funded. Yeah. And Um, number four, they are relentless. They will never, ever, ever quit. And that, you know, (laughs) when you have an enemy that has those four characteristics, (laughs) you got a tough fight. Yeah,
1: I think uh, organized is the key to what you just said, is is well organized, is they've got decades um, of organizations behind them from the Sierra Club all the way forward, right? Um, That have been doing this forever. And I think that's the one thing we talked about this whole. If I don't know if you remember the conversation that we had driving back from um, uh, Calico when you and I had it. We were on the ham radio and we had a good uh, mm-hmm. hour and a half conversation. I think, mm-hmm. uh, and driving back from the Pass Pro. <laughs> yep. And um, I remember one of the things that you that you said was that, it's, it's exactly that you mentioned those four things, but I think well organized is the one thing that's really lacking from the OHV community is that uh, we have sp- these kind of spin off and spur organizations that have a decent following, but there isn't this one unifying voice that that is unifying the rally call, unifying the the message, and unifying the actions and the behavior, uh, you know, to to drive forward.
2: Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, there are organization could be better. I, I definitely agree. Um, you know, several years ago, there was a, a a report done by the Outdoor Industry Association at OIA. And um, I, I'd have to bring up the report, but there was a, a $646 billion, I don't know, some massive amount for a recreation that the, you know, The recreational industry represents in terms of dollars, right? And out of that, it was it was some massive three hundred, two hundred and eighty something, or two hundred ninety something of that was motorized recreation. However, you know, motorized recreation gets a real bad rap on the Outdoor Industry Association and uh, on the outdoor industry. You know, when you look at there are a number of companies. A number of companies, and I, I I won't necessarily mention them here, but there's a long list of companies who have a, showed me that list have a history of being anti OHV, and these are companies I love their products.
0: That's a great but, topic to
1: bring up, though.
2: You know, and um, but but I you know as I was part of Area BFE, and I would go to these different conventions and stuff. Um, I confronted these companies, and I asked them what their position was you know, firsthand and the number of these, you know, I I called all of these companies to give them a chance um, to say, Hey, you know what I, you know, no, no, it's not. Or to kind of recant. Um, And there was really only one company that, that actively recanted out of 120 or whatever companies on that list. And um, the others uh, the others said that they didn't realize that the letter they signed Uh, that went to the president at that time um, (laughs) was, uh, you know, said that it was, you know, anti-OHV and this and that. And, um, you know, apparently they didn't read what they signed, which is also difficult to believe because these are, you know, high level executives who, you know, and and very household well-known companies that were part of that. Um, On the other side of it, you know, the companies, many of the companies that I dealt with, um, I had always tried to encourage them to get more involved on the land use. But one of the things was it was a lot easier for them to write a check to support something, to support the land use organization or to support area BFE or to support a cause than it was to actually put their name and company behind a cause and, and write a letter. Right. And, and see, that's a, That's again going back to the off-road community and off-road industry not understanding because those anti-OHV companies were willing to sign on the dotted line a letter that went to the president but then we have an uh, entire off-road community that represents a huge percentage of the outdoor industry revenue but but those companies are afraid to uh, you know put their pen to paper and and write a letter uh, supporting land access and so forth Um, that was my experience with, with that. And, and, you know, uh, it's, it was kind of disappointing getting to that point when I figured, you know, when I found that out. So I mean, that challenge, there's, there's a,
0: there's a few, there's a few major organizations like, uh, Corva, uh, tread lightly, uh, Orba, um, that actively proactively go and, uh, either they lobby or they work at a, at a local level with the BLM, uh, to do cleanups, to uh, uh, sponsor trails, what what have you, and but yeah, I mean within our community, it's like either, and I hope people who listen to this will actually go and support these uh, organizations. But within our community, that's pretty much the the gist of it. Like you support one of these three guys, and you feel like you did your good deed, and you hope that. The next time you want to go wheeling, your trail is going to be open. Or right. the next time you want to go to the beach, uh, that stretch of beach is still going to be open. But right now, they're like, you know, for instance, Pismo, um, they're having some major uh, battles uh, trying to keep that that stretch open. And it's, I guess, year over year, it's been it's been getting tighter and tighter, smaller and smaller uh, footprint uh, available to people uh, in the off road community. I don't know, man. It's uh, it's it's hard to motivate people when the rally cry for the conservationists is we're saving mother earth. And the rally cry for the outdoor recreationalists is we're going to go out wheeling, have fun, drink some beers. So, yeah, you it know. is
1: definitely tough to, I think to, to draw a direct comparison um, between the two. Right. And to say like one, I mean, it's kind of to, to your average person, it's kind of easy to say this one is probably a better cause than that one. Right. But I think, I, I don't think they have to be mutually exclusive. Right. And I think that's on us to say, look, just because I go out and I drive somewhere and I have some beers with my buddies around a campfire when I get there, that doesn't mean that I don't care about the land that, that I'm on and the sure. area that I'm here. I'm here to enjoy it just as much as the next person is. And I respect it and want it to remain as it is in that way. Right. And I think, Ali, I think you mentioned something really kind of that we kind of gl- uh, glossed over pretty quickly, but I think it's hugely relevant. And that is that I think overlanders and these, this community in general is is a really good bridge to that yeah right yeah. because we're not a lot of us do come from an off-road background but we're not so hardcore and and we're we kind of tend to be the the kind of middle ground. Right of both sides, we we appreciate the outdoors and respect the land, and we we do like to adhere to tread lightly and follow all of these different conservation ideals. But we also understand that the reality is the land is for everyone to use, and it should be enjoyed as much as possible, respectfully. And I think that's right. the key, right? And so I think, and that in that sense, the overland industry ha- has is in a really good position to to actually make a change to do something well, different. I I think. I mean,
2: I'm sorry. I think going back to the um, what Ali said about the different organizations, you know, I've been a member of uh, a number of organizations in California, in Utah, you know, uh, national organizations of land use over, over the many years, you know, that I've been involved in, um, you know, Area BFE and 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 so on, um, and they're they they have a purpose. They have right. they they draw a line in the sand. Um, and, you know, in terms of lobbying, in terms of, um, you know, the political side of things. Right. However, they're not winning the war. Right. Once in a while, they win a battle. Like I want somebody to tell me how many trails have been opened in the last year, in the last two years, five years. It's nothing. Now I want somebody to tell me how many trails have been closed in the last year. How many trails have been closed in the last two years, five years and you, the A numbers lot. are going to be very different.
1: Well, I mean, the thing that we've seen in on uh, the cycling world is actually we've actually had the the opposite. Um we've actually had success. And I think all well, the thing we talked about this too, I think on our drive is that when it comes to mountain biking, we probably 10 years ago, 15 years ago, actually more now, what am I saying? God, I'm like totally dating myself. Um I'm talking like the, <laughs> the, the turn You're of old. The, I know, man, like the turn of the 2000s, right? So 20 years ago, right? When mountain biking mountain bikes were booming and that was really when um, conservationists and mountain bikers really kind of they they butt heads like they truly butt heads hard uh, because they were everywhere. Mountain bike mountain bikers just came out of nowhere. It's kind of like when snowboarders first hit the slopes, right? They was like, mm-hmm. everyone was like, "What the shit? Like, what's happening?" Right. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. And so, um, one thing that we learned was you have to speak the language. You got to play the game, and by that I mean the legislative language and the legislative game. Right. And you really kind of have to build an organization that understands how to speak to the legislature, that has the funding to speak to the legislature, because that, at the end of the day, we, that is the system that we live in. As much as we hate it, right? Money talks and money makes the wheels turn. Right. That's the system that we live in. And I think in, until major companies got involved and not personally, like you said, Olaf, like that, none of them want to get involved personally, but they got behind an organization that would do it on their behalf. Right. And so, which I think is what the benefit of the outdoor industry has done is that they've got an organization that, that other, that all the businesses are willing to give, to fund them, to do the work on their behalf, which is the same thing that we did. And we've seen a lot of mountain bike trails open. And our biggest fight right now is with e-bikes with e-mountain bikes and we're actually having decent success even making the case for that and it's and not, and when I say us I don't mean Shimano I mean the collective as a community and it's yeah. beca- it's because um, we've learned to speak the language and we've learned to kind of you know to play the game and I think that's Is that cuz they
0: consider is it because they considered a motorized vehicle?
1: Yeah, yeah. Oh, so it was no. really struggling. So the conservationists immediately, without knowing anything, out of sheer ignorance and just trying <laughs> to block it, right? Because it was something new, uh, they tried to block it completely and get it banned from all the trails, claiming, like you said, Olaf, claiming wilderness area and saying that trying to get their their main point was to try and get trails designated as wilderness area. That was like mm-hmm. the tool. That was the tool yeah. they were going to use to block yep. to block access, right? And so, yeah. um. The, it was it was a, a multi-prong attack, I think, or or, or, a, or a, a tactic that ultimately is winning the battle, and that is um, one is building relationships with land managers, going out there and showing them firsthand what these um, what you know what these bikes do, how they function, how they interact with, with the environment, um, so they so that they know what is fact and what is fiction when they have the conversation with the other side, right? Mm-hmm. So that was that was step number one. Step number two is scientific. Right. Because you have to back this up with something that is quantifiable. Um, And so there was a lot of studies done on land erosion, land use, um, impact to the surrounding areas, noise, um, environmental, you name it. Right. And then the third um, is is legislative is money. And that's just starting to put things behind and putting and putting them into action and speaking to decision makers and 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 getting legislators to be on your side as an advocate for your cause. Right. And Mm -hmm. so I think those three things are what really changed the game. And I think that's really what's missing in some of the OHV. Like I know some regionally have had success. Like I think um, in actually in Joshua Tree, I think their local representative has had success in designating um, and growing sections of Death Valley and growing sections of Joshua Tree. Right. And getting those added uh, to protected lands and and giving them access still to OHV use. But it's very regional. Right. It's not, it's not even at the state level and it's definitely not the national level.
0: And the ratio is totally lopsided to Olaf's point, where it's like the amount getting closed versus the amount being open. Totally. Are totally lopsided. Um, Wanted to just really quick touch on the fact that this didn't come up back when we first talked about this whole topic, Olaf, but since our last talk, We've had an outdoor retailer, uh, the last outdoor retailer that was, uh, I believe, last year, 2019, mm-hmm. right before 2020. Um, they, actually, they actually started working with uh, Overland Journal and creating an Overland section to outdoor retailer, which is kind of unprecedented given how many of those companies are anti-OHV. Um, they're anti-vehicles going into the world and tearing things up. But suddenly, you've had... Uh, overland vehicles on display at this event and it's ongoing now
2: mm-hmm. which is
0: which is a cool turn of events i think yep. i think the future of camping really and i've always said this even back when i was making my pitch when i was at 511 was overlanding is camping 2.0 flat out like that is just it's, it's car just camping. dude it's just car camping Yeah, it's, it's car camping. camping and yeah the vehicles tend to be a little capable and little able so you're able to get to more secluded more remote places but otherwise this is camping, the new future state of camping. Tents on top of the vehicles, a lot of tents, co- tent companies, a lot of accessory companies for those tents, uh, a lot of accessories for the vehicles. So I, I feel like this is the biggest like piece of ammo that maybe people like you have had in a very long time uh, in order to make the case for keeping trails open to, to vehicles.
2: Well, it definitely shows a big push, you know, that, that uh, dollars talk, um, yeah, you know, uh, car exactly. companies... Car companies want to get involved. Uh, you know, major companies want to get involved with the outdoor yeah. industry. Uh, that's a that that definitely must just drive those preservationists. And I say preservationists, not conserve. Conservation <laughs> is good. Preservationist is, is, is more is the extreme side. Right. Um, Preservationist nuts um seeing those cars and you know at the outdoor industry association you know what i never understood was some of these companies that are anti-ohv all of their products are made of plastic you
0: Rice. know when you
2: when you look at when hey you it's BPA free bro yeah when you look at the uh, all that plastic industry and and what that entails one I of the mean, biggest
1: consumers of petroleum products right there right yeah i
2: don't, I don't i'm not sure where where they get off uh you know, pointing fingers. Hey, dude, yeah, I totally speak.
0: I totally support them, bro. Like my uh, radiator overflow tank is a Nalgene bottle. So right. yeah. I'm, I'm with them. You know, it's funny yeah. so I mean, that you bring years. that up
1: too because um, I know people like, like to hate on REI, right? It's being kind of granola and being kind of very anti-OHV. And I think they have been in the past, very kind of anti-OHV. They sell roof uh, tents. But- Exactly. They now sell a rooftop tent. And part of that, mm-hmm. and this is kind of the, the, the merging, I think, that's really key here and really useful, is that when, when Yakima, a bike brand, started making a rooftop tent, and now Thule, another bike brand that, right. is, that, that bought uh, Tapui, right? And so now you have these two bike brands that are now in the overland space. Right. And they're also they're traditionally kind of more sided with the REI side because that's you know, it's a bike thing. Right. And so now yeah. you have these companies that are starting to like get into the overland space and blur the lines between these two. Once REI has a financial stake in this business, I guarantee you their tune's gonna change if it hasn't already. Right. And I think right. it's it's only a good thing when those lines get blurred, right? The more those lines blur, between a straight up, like you were saying, Ali, a straight up camper and an overlander and becoming or camping 2.0, the further that those lines blur, the more difficult it is for a company to sideline a, a point like this and say, no, we're not going to, we're not going to encourage that. Now they have, now it's part of their bottom line and they're going to encourage it. Right.
0: Hey, that, that, uh, that whole market's only going to grow given with this, uh, upcoming recession, people are going to start living on their vehicles. So those tents <laughs> are going to come really in handy. I'm glad I got mine. <laughs> I mean,
1: you're not wrong because that's exactly what happened um, after the previous recession, right? People stopped paying for very expensive vacations and they started opting going for much more budget-friendly options. Exactly. Staycations became a thing, right? And so I think you're absolutely right is that um, if there's going to be a winner in this, it's the fitness industry, right? The at-home fitness industry, and it's going to be, you know, camping staycations,
2: Go Tell Peloton. It. Go Peloton. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you might have another um, one right there.
0: Ali was talking yeah. about yeah. getting one. <laughs> Shh,
2: sh, quiet, quiet.
0: Ashley might be watching. Oh, right. <laughs> It's a Mother's Day present.
2: The, Sorry, you
0: know, babe. Surprises out. T- talk,
2: talking about. Uh, Speaking of Ashley.
0: This is for you, Ashley. Mr. Wedding Crusher. <laughs> I still have it.
1: I still have it. It's. I love this thing. I'm never getting rid of this. I still have it. That's for did you, Ashley. Did, did, did she make that for you? She did. She made that yeah. for me when we went to Matt's wedding.
0: Yeah, that's awesome.
2: <laughs> talking about blurring the, uh, you know, blurring things the way you were with the cars coming into the OIA and everything. Many many years ago, when I was part of Area BFE, I um, signed on to the. There's a group in Utah called SUA, Southern Utah Wilderness Alliance, and uh, they're one of those, you know, sort of extreme preservationist uh, groups. And um, I I followed them on Facebook, you know, and uh, uh, some social media stuff anyway i came under fire because uh you know i followed them on facebook well you know i wanted to know what they were doing and what they were up to so i that you know you have to follow them or like their page or whatever it was i did you know in order to see their feed and their news and all that and i came under fire how could you join the? how could you like their page right. how could you this and that and i said hey man you should too you guys should too, so that you understand what the other side is doing.
1: Know thy I enemy. In,
2: in fact, I even I even came so far out to say, and I said this publicly, that we should all join the Sierra Club as off roaders, right. and in order to dilute their membership and <laughs> get on the board and and make you know be able to make some decisions when that within that organization as to right. you know how that how that would affect uh, you know. Uh, any attacks on the off road industry That's or the off road you know recreation, but uh, that never went across
1: so <laughs> <laughs> you, you, just, you just got your,
0: <laughs> you got your soapbox here, so maybe we can get some people into the Sierra <laughs> Club, some people supporting corva <laughs> Tread Lightly, orba uh if you're a business yeah Absolutely. um but uh let's let's just uh let's wrap it up. In a in a quick little summation, Olaf, what would you say would be the most impactful thing that people listening in on this could do right now in order to try to help uh, turn the tide a little?
2: Go online uh, in your community. Join join an off road club. Join more than one off road club. Uh, join the local you know land use organization. Join a state federal land use organization, and and take the time to be informed. Um, If you go uh, like, um, I don't know, Blue Ribbon Coalition or whatever, pick one of these different organizations, they all have a feed and they generally will put out information where there's, you know, legislative issues going on in this state for this trail and things like that and be informed. Um, I don't think people take enough time to be informed about anything more than 120 characters uh, these days. So that that's what I would do.
0: Cool. Thanks, man. Um, if people wanted to follow you somewhere, where would they go?
2: Oh, you can go to uh, Facebook, my name, Olaf Kiltow, or Homes by Olaf, or Instagram, uh, Twitter, Aventura Seeker. Uh, okay. Then you can follow me there.
0: Yeah. And you did mention the Homes by Olaf. If anyone's looking for a bitchin' real estate agent, Ooh. right? Come find <laughs> you in Orange County. Orange there County and the surrounding areas, uh, come come. Holler at Olaf. All right,
2: thanks for the plug, man. I appreciate it.
0: Yeah, yeah, of course, man. We got you. Um, all right, Frank, I think uh, time to pay the bills. Time to pay the bills. All right. Well, huge thanks to uh, Casey Lights for always being a supporter of what we do. We have our um, RFDLA event that we do throw in the parking lot of Casey and Gardena. Uh, so if you haven't checked one of those out, once we're done with this lockdown, please come out second week of each month, second Saturday we will be there, either Frank, myself, or one of the KC uh, team members will be there, hang out. We have garage sales. Sometimes we have special events. We usually serve coffee. Um, it's, a good, it's a good time to come get some inspiration and, and, and just see what's up. And, you know, Frank and I are both, uh, and, and Olaf, are all running KC Lights, and I've got nothing. Oh, yeah. yeah.
2: I mean, I was, How did, KC was a huge supporter of Area BFE. That's um, awesome. I, I mean, they were, since, you know, early on, uh, I have nothing, nothing, but great things to say about KC. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, I've been running KC lights on the Land Rover for years. And when I built the FJ, I had all KC lights on that thing. It's just great, great product, great company.
0: Right on. Yeah. And Frank and I both have the pro sixes and various, uh, accessory lights. Around I don't the have vehicle. the cool
2: stuff. That's the cool stuff. <laughs> yeah. We're going to have
0: to, we're going to have to get that taken care of when he's this a lot. Um, but yeah, I mean, and then, uh, I'm kind of bummed every single time we seem like we're about to get momentum on the gear forward side.
1: Oh, my gosh. I know, dude. Yeah, you're 100 percent right. It's like we're we're just about to make a big push and then something happens. And this time it just happens to be this uh, this virus. So um, sit tight. Hold on to that gear for a little bit longer. Actually, while you have time at home, go through your gear. Organize your right. gear and just put a little gear forward pile and put a little we're going to keep this and actually use it pile. Right. And so right. that way, when this kicks off again... Um, you can bring your gear either to like Ollie was saying, O s Ollie, Os- Ollie. <laughs> bring it, bring it to Ollie, <laughs> bring it to just LA, bring it to OC or bring it to San Diego. And if you don't live in any of those cities or near any of those cities, you can always visit gear forward online and send it directly to them. They have a whole process. They can take care of you and they may even have some need locally in your area. So you don't have to send it at all. They can just have someone come and get it. So,
0: yeah. So, I mean, uh, this this Monday tomorrow, um, we will not be out of this shelter-in-place uh, situation, but hopefully soon we will all be back on the trail. And hopefully all of you guys stay healthy uh, until then. And uh, yeah, you may have another episode from us from uh, from our homes, but we will we will uh, be looking forward to the day yeah. where we get back on the trail with you.
1: We'll try to keep them coming. So until then, uh, check us out on RigForDirt.com. Uh, you can check us out on Instagram, Facebook, and now on YouTube. Um, i've been yeah. putting up the uh the episodes on thanks, youtube frank. and so we'll that'll be there and i think we'll be doing more with youtube since we're at home uh, we'll be doing more with youtube in the future so stay tuned for there um until then i am frank trucking My truck face i'm ali kate the jeep and, and we'll see you next
0: time with here with yeah. olaf <laughs>
2: um olaf having to see all right <Take> guys <laughs> care, guys <It's> hey, been thanks awesome. guys thanks for having me you're welcome
0: Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
2: bye